Hey, while we might not be as fast as those guys racing in the Tour de France, cyclists like you and me are always trying to boost our performance and aid our recovery. And that's where today's sponsor, MitoQ, comes in. Like everything else in our bodies, our mitochondria become less efficient as we age. From the age of 30 on, levels of a CoQ10 in the mitochondria can decline by 10% with each passing decade. This means that our body's natural resilience also declines, which can impact our training, our recovery, immunity, digestion, sleep, stress, hormones, and even brain power. And this is why a new supplement called MitoQ is becoming so popular with endurance athletes. It helps the body better deal with intense training periods and then recover faster. Some athletes have even said they've improved their VO2 max, heart rate variability, and lactate thresholds. When you combine that with not needing as long to recover and being able to maintain more intense training cycles, you can see why MitoQ might help you achieve your performance gains. To learn more about the unique formula of MitoQ, to read some independent clinical trials and read some independent athlete testimonials, go to mitoq.com forward slash power up cycling. That's www.mitoq.com slash power up cycling. Thanks to MitoQ for sponsoring this episode of the Velonews Podcast. Let's get on with the show. Uh, welcome back to the Velo News Podcast. Fred Dreyer coming to you on a Friday afternoon. The Tour de France is nearing comple- completion. And boy, I got to say, it really is an endurance event. I can't imagine what it's like to race it. But sitting here in my extra bedroom, watching it every morning, and then producing content around it is tiring enough. Oh, poor me. Poor people like me in the Tour de France press corps. Hey, we have a great um, penultimate episode of Velo News's Tour de France podcast today. Later in the show, uh, James Start and Andy Hood have their final dispatch from the race. They're joined by uh, another French journalist, Pierre Carré from Liberation, the uh, magazine in, Fran- in France. And they're talking all about what the 2020 Tour de France meant for French fans. Um, great dispatch from them today. Um, we have some other soundbites, Sepkus, that we're going to hear from again. Um, but before we get to that, again, we have Jens folks calling in from Germany. And Jens, you know, I want to get to the GC battle and what has transpired in the last couple of days. And we're heading into this final individual time trial at La Planche de Belfi, which is maybe is going to shake up the GC standings. But before we get to this GC stuff, Jens, the last two stages, we're recording this on Friday. We just saw Stage 19. So stages 18 and 19 finally has been stages for the breakaways. And I was watching these stages. I was thinking, I can't wait to ask Jens about the breakaway etiquette of the uh, riders in these various breakaways. Because you obviously, you know, of course, are the, are the man who made breakaways the hottest, coolest thing at the Tour de France. So let's start first with Thursday's stage 18. This was the big mountain stage from Maribel to La Roche-sur-Foron. And we had this really cool breakaway with Ineos riders Richard Carapaz and Kwiatkowski, as well as Peo Bilbao and your man Mark Hershey. As you were watching this group of riders out there, what was your assessment 
of them as breakaway riders. And what was your assessment of this breakaway in general? It came a little as a surprise that you had two riders from Chimeneos up there. I mean, they were like riding like the living death before, like living dead, like zombies. And now suddenly they are up there firing on, you know, on all guns. So it was good to see a comeback after they had been pretty much beat down. It was a great comeback. And also a great display of uh, sportsmanship or camaraderie. How they crossed the line together. It was really good. And the team Ineos, they regained the respect from their competitors and also from the public, um, you know, to be a racing team and not just to disappear. So it was really good to see that. And there's not many people like more likely or more, more likable than um, Kwiatkowski. He's a really good guy. You know, he's just never yelling, never shouting, never throwing any hooks at anyone. He's just a really hardworking, nice guy. So it's good to see him winning and taking a stage after so many years in the Tour de France, always in the service of others. Um, I think Mark Hirschi would have been able to spoil the party without the crash he had. He later admitted he uh, they used a new type of tires. Um, he wasn't used to him and he just slipped. Carapace had that tiny little gap. He took the corner too fast to close that gap to, to Carapace. Well, well, we talked like whatever, 30 feet or whatever, 50 feet, not much more than that. But he wanted to close that gap, took too much risk and he slipped. New set of tires and he wasn't used to him. So he's, he admitted I took too much risk, my own fault. Otherwise, I believe he would have been up there not only for the KOM jersey, but also for the stage win. Yeah, it was a shame. You know, as happy as I was to see two t- riders from the same team crossing the line together, and it was a really heartfelt moment, I was looking forward to a two against one, especially when that one was Mark Hershey, because he's been such a revelation of this tour. Very strong, riding extremely aggressively. And I really wanted to see how he was going to try and outfox or outmuscle those two Ineos guys in the finale. We didn't get to see it because he slid out and slipped. Uh, but yeah, as that breakaway was heading into the second half of the stage, I was like, who boy, you know, are we going to have another um, two Boras against one uh, EF pro cycling type situation where the one rider, some, you know, uses his uncanny skills or his strength to go up against the two riders in the breakaway uh, but alas, we didn't see it. So yeah, very strange sight. I can't remember the last time I saw two riders from the same team crossing the line um, at the Tour de France. It's something we, we just don't see very often. Yeah, um, we had that discussion also before a few days ago. And I uh, my answer was the first or the only thing that comes to my mind is that legendary picture with Bernard Eno and Greg Lemon riding, you know, like, uh, you know, uh, next to each other hugging each other and crossing the line uh, together with, I believe it was Lavi Claire, the jersey. Um, and that's like the last time or the only time I remember two teammates having so much of a gap that they had time to celebrate and talk about who's going to cross the line first or not. Um, because um, as Karapach uh, told us, it was a decision between them to give the stage to Kwiatkowski because Karapach really had the mountains jersey and he's quite confident to keep it until Paris. Um, so he said, look, then uh, Kwiat, you take the stage after years and weeks and months of helping others. 
he has a little reward for you. So that was uh, was good to see. Okay, then on stage 19, that is Friday's stage, we saw a um, really aggressive finale where riders were attacking, attacking, attacking in the last 50 kilometers of the break. Breaks would go, then they'd come back, then a new group would go, and then they'd come back. And finally, we saw this breakaway of classic specialists get away over the, ha- the hilly finale. It was so thrilling to see guys like Greg Van Avermaet, Peter Sagan, uh, Sam Bennett, so a bunch of other like heavy duty rollers, you know, really banging bars in there. And I thought it was going to come down to a sprint. And then Soren Craig Anderson spoils the party attacking on a descent to get his gap and win. Um, first of all, Jens, I mean, what did the breakaway do wrong? What did they how, what should have happened the moment Soren Craig Anderson attacked? How how did he spoil this party? And what did the guys behind screw up? First of all, they should not have underestimated him. Bloody hell, he won a stage like three days ago. How can you let him get away, right? That's just a no-go first. Second, they should have realized that the three guys in contention for a green jersey, Matteo Trenton, Peter Zagan, and Sam Bennett, they're going to watch each other and block each other and neutralize each other. So they're worthless. You cannot counter them to chase or to jump. Luca Metzges. For Mitchell and Scott, Metzges, I'm sorry if I pronounced it wrong. Um, he finished second behind Zeron Krak Anderson in Lyon like three or four or five days ago. Right? He should have gone straight away to Jack Bauer. Jack, go, chase, immediately. I'm on your wheel. Jack, you just drill it, you drive, you ride as hard as you can, and you catch him. And then I win the stage and I win the sprint. But they, they couldn't. Um, also Sam Bennett, he had a teammate there. He should have, he should have like worked together with Jack Bauer. Two riders chasing John Clark Anderson. That could have worked. Instead, he just looked at each other, played the poker game, and he was gone. And he's a damn strong rider. Once he had 30 seconds, forget about it. Who's going to chase him? So they should have reacted immediately, especially Michelton Scott. They had one of the fastest guys there and a very strong guy in Jack Bauer to, to ride tempo. They should have gone, both of them, together immediately after him. Yeah, the other one I had a, a big question mark about was CCC team because they have both Trenton and Van Avermaet in the group. And I'm like, why isn't Greg Van Avermaet getting on the front? But then it's like, well, is that just not what Greg Van Avermaet does? You know, does he not pull for a teammate? Is there some something we don't know about going on between those guys? But I was curious to see CCC not throwing a rider into the chase, the chase as well. Well, they, they should have been realistic. Out of that group, Greg Van Avermaet could never, ever win the sprint. So he should automatically switch into a role. How can we win this sprint? Ah, with Matthias Trentin. So I should be working for him, right? Um, but I believe also they, they all were pretty tired. I mean, don't forget, we got 3,000 kilometers in the legs, like whatever, 2,300 miles, whatever that is. That's a long distance. So they're all a little tired. And maybe some of them, they went, I just want to go to the finish line. I, I couldn't be bothered anymore, right? Um, but yeah, CCC, another team was two riders there, and they didn't get enough out of it for having two riders in the first group. They didn't achieve the optimum result there. Well, chapeau to Soren Craig Anderson. Amazing Tour de France. He's a guy that, you know, we've all, we've had our eyes on Soren Craig Anderson for a long time at the classics. I remember him being second at Get Vevelgem, oh, five or six years back. 
And that was one of those results where it was like, woo, this guy can really ride. He can bank bars with some of the stronger classics guys out there. And, you know, he's he's been a protected rider at the classics, but to see him get opportunities like this at the Tour de France, where he's often had to ride in service of Michael Matthews or Tom Dumoulin or, you know, one of the team's Jersey riders um, has been great to see. So chapeau to him. So Jens, big talking point yesterday with Tim in- Team Ineos taking the stage win as well as the Polka Dot jersey has was around the the redemption, the day of redemption for Team Ineos. Egan Bernal was obviously dropped out, not in contention for the overall anymore, and Ineos wins the stage and takes the Polka Dot jersey. A question that I I wrote about this, and I know how I feel about it, but I'm curious to get your take on it. Is is a stage win? And a polka dot jersey is that enough to salvage the Tour de France for Team Ineos? It's better than nothing, but no, it's not. They have been such a dominant team. Um, I mean, back in the days with Team Sky, they used to win the sprint with uh, Cavendish and all the TTs with Wiggins at the mountaintop finishes. So they had much more success. No, they were not ready for this tour. What I find so interesting is they got that. Defending champion, not in shape. The whole team is kind of like invisible. We talked about it before. The team is not where they should be. As soon as the captain goes home, they all go twice as good. Well, was the captain holding them bad? Bad? Was he bad influence on the team? What the heck? The captain leaves and everybody is like liberated and is free to go and they smile and they happy and they go aggressive and they are much better riders without Egan Bernal there. Well, what's the story behind that? Were they all waiting for him every single day? Could could they have won many more stages with the freedom to go? So did Egan Bernal hold the team back? Right? It's 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 a weird chemistry there. Um, and I mean, he dropped out of the uh, Dauphine Libre, right? Like one day in the morning, they gave a press communique. Egan Bernal is out of the Dauphin Libre with a sore back. The very same day, he is spotted out there training. So like, well, if he got a sore back, why would, why, why do you make him go up mountains? Send him home to recover. So I believe Team Sky, they were just like, you know, hoping, fingers crossed, his back is going to recover within the tour. I don't think he was ready from the first day, and they knew it. They just didn't tell us, of course. But I think they knew that he's worse damaged, or his back is worse than they told us. And they were just hoping for a miracle after they left uh, Froome and uh, Geraint Thomas at home. Well, well, what else could they do? So I believe they knew it could go really wrong. We just hoped for the best. And it didn't turn out to become better. So we have to go home, and the team is... They, they like you change bike riders now. They ride so much better without their own captain, which is not a good sign. Yeah, it was strange to see Carapaz in the breakaways three days in a row after Bernal left. So, you know, I felt like that, you know, even though he didn't win, he was second twice and then was caught before the line on the uh, the big uh, ascent of the Col de la Lowe's, it was a sign that he was very strong. You know, if he's going in three mountain breakaways, three days in a row, and making it to the finish line two of those three times, it's a sign that he was riding very well. Um, I'm with you. For any, you know, basically any other team in the peloton, a stage win and a polka dot jersey and, you know, 
being aggressive and a guy in top 15 in GC in his first Tour de France, those are all great accomplishments. That is definition of success. But, you know, unfortunately, we just have to we have to grade Ineos Grenadiers with a different grading book. You know, there's the dominance of seven Tours de France in the last mm-hmm. 10 years. There's the budget twice the budget of many tour many teams in the group and then there's just the expectation um of coming in with a defending champion it's like i was thinking about this yesterday you know if egan bernal had put up a valiant fight and finished third place fourth place you know two minutes down minute 50 down i actually think that's a better scenario for them than a stage win and a polka dot jersey because hey at least they're in the fight you know they're going toe-to-toe with roglic but since they were just so obviously a weaker team and their GC rider was just obviously not ready and such a weaker force, it's like, ah, you could do, you could win two stages, three stages. Like it's not going to salvage the fact that expectations were sky high for that team. And they didn't, they didn't finish the boxing match. They dropped out after uh, six rounds. So, Hey, better 2021 for, uh, Team Ineos Grenadiers, uh, because I have no doubt that they're going to figure something out and come back strong. Um, Jens, I wanted to ask you about a tense moment that happened uh, during stage 18 atop the Plateau de Glieras, 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 apologies, um, the gravel climb. We saw Richie Port get a front puncture, lose the front group, just as Roglic and Pogaccia and all these guys are going ahead. And it looked like he's out of it. You know, he's having to chase to catch back on. And uh, Mika Landa's in that front group. And he had Caruso with him, a teammate. Landa's trying to make up time on Port. And I was just thinking, well, Port is screwed because Landa and all these guys are going to gun it to the finish. And he's not going to catch back on. And it looked like they kind of the front group kind of slowed at some point. And Port eventually did catch back on with the help of some Yumbo guys. What was going on there? How was Port able to catch back? Was this... Uh, Bahrain McLaren not taking advantage of a good situation. Was this a truce called on the road? What was your assessment of how that whole situation played out? Well, I believe, first of all, Richie is a very good rider, a very good time trialer, and he is just getting a little more into the two. He's getting better in this last week. In the front group, we had Damiano Caruso riding tempo. He was in the break a long time. He was already tired. Landa did try to go, but he couldn't really drop the uh, team uh, Jumbo Visma. So they both rode very hard, but they just not strong enough to really keep Richie uh, Port behind. And in the end, then I believe also Jumbo Visma, they decided we're going to work with Richie Port. We bring Richie Port back to the front, but we will have more people in the front to actually protect our leader instead of only having Seb Kuss out there, who actually is becoming the right-hand lieutenant of uh, Primoz Roglic. He is super strong in his last week. Really impressive, talented bike rider. So they brought Wolf van Aert back and uh, Dumoulin and they figured, okay, we got four people in the first group that is much safer than only one. And, um, you know, they realized also with the puncture that Richie Port had. What happens if Seb Kast has a puncture or Roglic? Nobody is there to help, really. So they figured, we work with Richie, because Richie is less dangerous. He's two minutes 36, I believe, uh, down. So they figured we can bring him back. And we have two more teammates up there in the front. So they had just common interest in that specific situation. 
So and Richie is just damn strong. And Richie wants a good Tour de France. He, he said before the interview, he wanted one more performance, one more per performance for himself in the GC before he signs as a domestic deluxe anywhere else. So I, I, I wish for him he's going to get that podium spot tomorrow and finishes, you know, his best Tour de France ever in his last time he's going to try for it. So it would be just really nice because he's a really friendly, down-to-earth guy and old teammate of mine. So I keep my fingers crossed for Richie. Yeah, I'm crossing my fingers for him too. The fact that he um, raced this Tour de France while his second child was born. He didn't get to be there for the birth of his child. Um, I would love to see him go home with a career best finish, which it's looking like he's going to get that. Whether it's a third place or a fourth place, that's something that will be decided um, tomorrow. You know, that that dirt section on, on the plateau, that's another hot talking point in the American cycling scene at least. Because as you know, Jens, American cycling is completely in love with gravel racing and racing on dirt roads and rocks and punctures and all that stuff. We can't get enough of it. Dirty Kanza, the race formerly known as Dirty Kanza, all these races, we love it. Um, not quite the case in the European peloton. I know that opinions are mixed over there. So my question for you is, Jens, where do you come down on this? Do you think that sections of gravel, gravel roads belong in the Tour de France? Yes and no. Yes, as a commentator and spectator, yes, they make spectacle. They make it exciting as a former bike rider. Hell no. It's a gravel ride. Then you sign up for a gravel ride with a gravel bike. This is the Tour de France. And, you know, Miguel Angel Lopez, 55 kilos weight. Richie Port, 62 kilos weight. They're just not ready for that, right? If you got the Belgian classic specialist, they just laugh at it. But, you know, if you're like a tiny little Colombian climber, you're not ready for that, right? Um, so I, I can't make up my mind. I'm just like, one second I go, no, that's stupid. And then I go, oh, hell yeah, that was awesome. No, it was stupid. So I, I don't really know what to say, to be honest here. I can see both sides, and I understand also both sides of it. Well, I remember seeing you at uh, aid station number two during Dirty Kanza in 2018. I should have asked the question to you then um, when you were getting water poured down your mouth and your legs were cramping, and I would have been like, hey, Jens, should they have a stage of the door like this? <laughs> um, well, so tomorrow's it. Final individual time trial. Going up La Planche de Belfi, the first 20 or 28 or so kilometers are flat and then rolling, and then they go straight up the hill, which averages 9%. There's some real steep ramps up there. My last question for you, Jens, how do you see it playing out? What is your top five, your predicted top five after tomorrow's stage? All righty. Top five of the stage tomorrow. Um, Roglic's going to win. Richie Port going to finish second. Pogacar going to finish third. Dumoulin, four. Uh, who's going to be five? Who is going to be five on the stage tomorrow? I don't know. I just got Sorry. I just got a pick on top of my head. Um, number five, number five, number five. We got Landa, we got Uran, we got Enric Maas. Nah, Uran is, he's, he's tired. He's, uh, he's not, not good enough. You know what? Wout van Art. I like it. Wout van Art. But, interesting fact. Tomorrow, the KOM. There's two points between the leading rider Karapach 
and the white jersey holder and second in the overall Tadej Pogacar. The KOM is played only on the last climb, not the stage winner, not the fastest overall time. There's a time section on that very last climb, five point something kilometers. So here's what I think. Tadej Pogacar, he's still racing for yellow. He's gonna go all in, all the stage. Karampach, Richard Karampach in a mountains jersey, in a KOM jersey, he doesn't need to win the time trial because he's nowhere in the GC. He's going to go easy, pedaling towards the climb, probably going to jump on his normal bike before the climb and just sprint up all in on the last climb to just win this time KOM section to defend his mountain jersey, right? Pogacar has to race all day full gas. Richard Carapaz will play it easy at the start and go all in only on the climb. He probably is not going to be leading or winning the TT, but he will, he will defend his jersey. Interesting point as well. Pogacar told his um, colleagues or his um, Slovenian journalist friends, he is planning with a bike change, mm. going with the faster TT bike, but that's heavier. Changing on the climb to a lighter like normal bike, you only allow, the mechanics only allow to push for five meters, five meters. That is 15 feet. More than that, you get penalized. Normally, if the mechanic pushes you for, let's say, 50 yards, that actually is, you know, is a lot of help. So, and the bike you change, it has to come from the roof of the car behind you. You cannot have your, you cannot have your friend waiting on the side of the road with that bike. That is illegal. So that costs more time. I talked to my old friends uh, from Trek Fredo. They said, Jens, we do have a plan, but we do not want to, we don't want the whole world to know it yet. So they refused to tell me. Yeah, I know. They refused. Fair enough. Fair enough. They got a plan and they keep it to themselves. And I'm sure all these teams have planned it. Um, from what I remember, it's 18 seconds. That's a fast change. From the time the rider breaks down, stops, they get the, the mechanic jumps out, gets the bike off, the rider gets on, he pushes the five meters. That's not far. That's as long as the room is you're working in. Not more. 18 seconds. It's a fast bike change. Then you got to calculate how much weight do I save? How much faster can I go on a road bike compared to a TT bike? Can I make up the 18 seconds? I'm going to lose with the bike change. So it's a, it's a tricky business. I can't wait to see how many teams use the bike change or if you win or lose with that. It's going to be super exciting. Yeah, Roglic said that he was going to make a game time decision. He was going to decide right before the TT whether or not he was going to do it, which obviously means he's been knowing what he's going to do for months and months and months. And just like Trek Segafredo doesn't want to give it away as well. I mean, look, I've climbed stuff in boulder here on a time trial bike and it wasn't particularly fun i you know i could definitely see the advantage on a climb like that that's that steep that has the 20 percent, 21 percent ramp right at the end i mean just you when you're gassed and a ramp like that you can lose so much time if you don't if you're not feeling that great so i i would not be surprised to see uh most of the top guys switch into a tt bike but eh what do I know? I'm just some schlub. <laughs> <laughs> no. Hey, one more tech thing for our tech geeks. 
I contacted again my uh, track team and uh, somebody from um, Israel Startup Nation. Um, on that steep climb, I uh, called it a loose, I believe. Yep, the track team, they are with the SRAM. So they used 52, 39 wow. in the front and uh, 10 to 33 in the rear. So the smallest gear they had on that super steep climb was 39, 33. And uh, the people from Israel Startup Nation, they had as well 39, I believe they are with Shimano. They had a 39 as well, and their cassette went from 11 to 32. So pretty similar in the gearings. And um, that is a small gear, right? 39, 33, that's a small gear. Yeah, on a 33, you could like um, eat a piece of cake off of that, you know, or maybe an entire cheeseburger. Mm -hmm. You could eat a cheeseburger and fries off of that. That's big enough. That's a plate. Yep. Indeed. Indeed it is. Well, the GC will be decided tomorrow. Um, I, I like Jens's picks. I, 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 I tend to agree with you, and I really do want to see Richie Port um, ride his way onto the podium. I think that would be a really cool thing to yeah. see. Um, yes. So, Jens, I really appreciate you uh, calling in throughout the Tour de France. Your insight has been invaluable, um, and you know, again, Jens has been brought to us by Trek. With the Go by Bike campaign, Trek is challenging anyone to replace one car trip with a bike ride once a week. Post about it on social media with hashtag Go by Bike. Get your friends to do it, and you can learn more at trekbikes.com forward slash Go by Bike. Jens, you have been a wonderful guest, and I hope we can link up soon. Indeed. Thanks for giving me a chance to talk to you, folks. Thanks for listening, and yeah, hopefully soon again. You heard me talk about MitoQ at the top of the show. Many of us have heard of supplementing our training with the antioxidant CoQ10 for energy and recovery. MitoQ is a unique form of CoQ10 engineered to get inside the mitochondria in our cells to help create cellular energy and neutralize free radicals. MitoQ helps improve recovery, immunity, digestion, sleep, and stress, all of which will help you train better and be healthier. To learn more about the unique formula, to read some independent clinical trials, and read some athlete testimonials, go to www.mitoq.com forward slash power up cycling again www.mitoq.com forward slash power up cycling okay back to the podcast oh it feels good um my director was joking with you the other day that this is this is the last day of the tour for me <laughs> um but no we we still have to stay really focused tomorrow you never know what'll happen and then uh uh yeah we'll we'll wait and see for the time trial but but we're uh, we're confident and uh feeling good how was that over today's that final hc very steep was it harder than yesterday or was it not quite no, not not harder than yesterday. It was more more steady, but uh, uh, I think the, the gravel section was was really brutal. I mean, your legs are already uh, pretty dead, and then you have to uh, yeah work your way over the really rough rough gravel. So it was uh, a hard moment. On the climb set when Landa attacked, I mean, the group thinned out a lot. Then was that a very hard part of the race? Uh, yeah, it was normal. I mean, well, it was already. 
oh, uh, George and well, we're riding a, a pretty hard pace already. So, uh, yeah, we, we could see him in front of us the whole time, and we, we just rode with, within ourselves, really. How does it feel you've been through this first tour? You've been the last man for uh, pretty much the last two days, and you must be pretty satisfied. Yeah, definitely. I mean, um, this this third week has been, been really tough, but... Uh, Yeah, for, for me personally, I've I've felt uh, um, better and better every every stage, and especially in the third week, I've felt better than in the in the third weeks or the first week. So uh, that's that's encouraging. Um, but yeah, I mean the the whole team has just been amazing. So <laughs> it, it forces you to step up at a level when when everybody's riding so so well. What was that like when for now got blown up the other day in the Grand Colombia? Was that, he was the number one rival in the Pogachar has come out, of course, but what was that sensation for the team that day? Um, yeah, I don't know. I think we, before that, Pogachar was already the main rival. Uh, yeah, we we didn't concentrate on, on too many other guys, really. And was he a rival all the way up to today? Pogachar, you guys had to watch him, obviously. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think he's shown that he's the most uh, attacking rider and... Uh, yeah, him and him and Lopez have the most uh, guts to go for it, so it's it's the toughest to uh, control. Did you enjoy the gravel the gravel road? Do you approve of that in the stage of the I mean, it's it's cool, but it's uh, yeah, it's it's a shame if, if you have a, a problem there, especially in so late in the tour. But uh, it's it's cool. Yes. <laughs> so what are the sport directors telling you guys now the way to tomorrow's stage? Not to get the champagne on ice. Yeah, that's that's the thing. You you can't have too many. You can't have high highs, or uh, you know, you have to stay pretty pretty level and, and stay focused. But uh, yeah, it's it's for sure a relief to have uh, the really tough tough days under our belts. And with the time trial, I mean, uh, Primoz must be pretty confident with the time he has. Yeah, I think so. Um, I mean, yeah, the, the race isn't over yet, and it's it's such a long and, and hard time trial that, that anything can happen. But, uh, I mean, Primoz is, is one of the best TTers, especially on a course like that in the world. So, um, yeah, for sure he's confident, and, and he hasn't used uh, too, too many <laughs> bullets yet this, this tour. So. Has there ever been a bad day for Primoz? He's been pretty much rock solid. Yeah, yeah, he's he's really been uh, really level. He's, he's really good at measuring his effort and uh, he, he knows himself really well and um, yeah he's a, a smart uh, bike racer from where from Slovenia yes yes my, my great-grandparents <laughs> okay okay yeah yeah so it's easy to ride for a for a, for a meal from Slovenia <laughs> yeah yeah it's um, every year during Christmas I always eat uh, Slovenian pastries so maybe that's Giving me some good, uh, good power. <laughs> and, and you were well back there sometime? Yeah, when I was, uh, I believe when I was 12, we did a backpacking trip in uh, Triglav National Park, and uh, yeah, amazing, beautiful country. And your grandparents are all from which, which uh, region? Um, uh, I, I, I can't remember the, the name, but uh, but they, yeah, it, it was a very, very long time ago that they immigrated to uh, the United States. So you No, no, unfortunately. <laughs> okay, okay. Thank you. Yeah. So you're doing the worlds, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. After that? 
Uh, Walter. Yeah, yeah, that's the plan. Go there to who else is going to the Uh, I have no idea. No idea. I think maybe Tom, but um, yeah, I'm not sure. You'll be the team leader, man. Come on. No, no, <laughs> no. That's that's too much for me. <laughs> too much pressure. I mean, there's a lot of speculation that someday you could be a GC leader. Is that is that something? I mean, I'm sure you see it on uh, Twitter and everything. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I don't. I don't think it's for me, really. But uh, if uh, if one year there's a, a course with tons of high altitude climbs and no time trials, then maybe I could go for it. But uh, yeah, in, in a standard Tour de France or something, I don't know if it's. Uh, I'd, I'd rather win win stages than fight for a top five or or something like that. Yeah. Hey, before we get to Andrew Hood and James Start, I want to talk to you guys about an exciting new wrinkle we have with our Active Pass membership. Look, we launched Active Pass about two months ago, and since then we've had a ton of signups, and I've ha- I've gotten a lot of messages from readers, uh, both positive, hey, I love this thing, and also saying, you know. Active Pass is cool, but there's elements of it that don't really apply to me. I'm not super interested in coaching or access to live events. What I really want is the content. I want Velo News Magazine. I want access to the daily exclusive content and all the stuff you're doing around the Tour de France. Well, guess what? We have a new membership that is catered to you if you are one of these people. Um, it's called Velo News Pass. It is $49 for an annual subscription and it includes all of the exclusive content on VeloNews.com. So that's all of the membership roundtables, hoodies column, um, archive pieces, daily analysis, and exclusive news pieces. Uh, in addition to a year subscription to VeloNews Magazine, that's nine issues. And we're also throwing in the industry deals like pro deals to Jordana, um, Scratch Labs, some other companies in there. And yeah, that's what's included in the new VeloNews Pass. It's $49. You can learn more or sign up at VeloNews.com slash ActivePass. But this is a new a new membership product. I'm really excited about it. Again, you know, this was born from a lot of readers um, and your feedback. So continue to reach out via social media or web letters at VeloNews.com. And if you want more information on Active Pass or VeloNews Pass, check out VeloNews.com slash ActivePass. Okay, let's hear from Andy Hood and James Start. Good evening, listeners from, uh, we are in... Uh, where are we? Where are we? That's always, somewhere in that's, France. Always somewhere in France. Just finished stage 18. And uh, just finished dinner, Dom Blanche, always a good thing to have, a good steak, good food, good company. But tonight we have a special guest in the Velo News podcast, Pierre Carey, French journalist, old colleague of ours, we've known him for many, many years, works for Liberation, and uh, we're going to be talking tonight a little bit about the French uh, perspective of their own Tour de France, because for us, at least, you know, an American coming in, you know, France, the Tour de France is this world event, but really in many ways, it's a French event. So uh, Pierre and James have been living here for 30 years in France. So I'm going to interview both of you guys, actually. Um, I guess kind of the first question I had for Pierre was, you know, the the big push in this tour is like, you know, we must make the Tour de France. 
with the COVID, it's like a symbol of uh, the continuation of normality. I'm just kind of curious, was that really a uh, what everyone in France thought or was there kind of maybe some pushback? against having the tour this year. Well, Tour de France is uh, a bit of a propaganda this year. And uh, yesterday, uh, at the top of uh, Col de la Loz, the infamous Col de la Loz, the French President Emmanuel Macron was uh, on the site and said Tour de France has a real political use and uh, it's uh, very symbolic. Um, they, they, Tour de France is supposed to show there is a kind of normal life in France. Of course, there is... a. Uh, it has been a lockdown. The country has been locked. But now they, they try to pretend to the France might bring a little bit of joy. And um, <clears throat> it was a deal in April when they did decide to postpone the tour by two months. It has happened, but only partly because obviously um, in the TV news, for instance, the tour de France is quite low on the road. It's 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 a bit mixed. You see, some stages are really crowded, packed. Uh, it has been like uh, between Ile d'Oléron and Ile de Ré, just uh, on the Atlantic uh, coast. It was packed, like in July. But obviously, September is slightly different. But behind this big decision to uh, maintain the Tour de France this year, um, there are political reasons. So this is a blend between a government decision and uh, a very matter of um, uh, of business, yeah, from ISO, the, the company owned by uh, Mario Di Lamori is a private company, fund about uh, se- se- by by seventy percent by the French government, whatever it is through the French television or cities and towns that every day did host the tour. So this is uh, this is. A private company. This is a public event, and this is almost, uh, uh, yeah, a big, 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 big political issue. Yeah, it's very interesting that you pointed that out because it is. It's a private company making this 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 bike race that goes around that is supported by public money, by every start town and start village and the finishing towns are paying in ASO to the money to to organize the race, and it's mainly public money. And plus from the uh, French national television. So when you talk about a, a, a decision of a politic, is, so when the decision was made to organize the Tour de France, you believe that was made at the highest levels of between Macron, the government, and all the ministries. And that, so that reflects really how powerful ASO and the Tour de France is and has become. Well, I, 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 I just like to add, you know, since I've uh, been on the tour for the last three weeks, uh, I've talked to uh, Thierry Gouvenou, the race director. I also talked with um, uh, uh, Florence uh, the Pomeri, the uh, chief medical staff. And she really was very touching because this woman has no political interest, no financial interest. She's not getting paid any more money to be working a lot of extra hours to try to help make this tour happen. And she said very clearly, there were three different segments that made this tour happen. There was ASO, the race organizers. There was herself and the medical staff that was, you know, was going to say this can happen or this can't happen. And there's a the French government. And she said, you know, I really want to stress to you that it was a real group effort and we all spent a lot of time, a lot of hours, and a lot of goodwill to make this happen. Because why? Because yes, 
this is the potential for this to really help bring society out of the sort of general funk that we're in. The tour has that kind of capacity. And if, we, if we're smart about it and if we're cautious and if we try, you know, and we take the preventions that, and they're taking a lot of preventions, we could really pull off something that's pretty great. And she was so sincere that my skepticism uh, was was quant- qualified. I have to I have to say that I, I I came to this tour going, why are we really doing this? Are we just going through motions because we feel like we have to? I we did stories in Vela News about comparing this year's tour to the first tour after World War II and the importance to refine a sort of normalcy. Was that true? Was that contrived? I, you know, I don't know. But I, I, I sense that there are a lot of people here that are really trying to make a serious effort because they really believe that there's, there's, the tour can bring goodwill after everything we've gone through this year. Yeah, I, I think that's a very interesting observation. I, I guess the thing that struck me actually was, uh, the thing that struck me about this tour was, you know, they imposed all these severe health inst- restrictions on the teams, put them in a bubble, put them under this threat of uh, two strikes and you're out. That didn't happen. Uh, you know, the media has been restricted. The fans have been restricted. But I've been struck by the fact that, you know, ASO as a company is still doing a lot of the things that it normally does during this tour. You know, the VIP zone is there. I drove past it today, the... the I can't remember what it's called, but it's, you know the the station of relaxes there along the road. Uh, you know, Start Village is there. The publicity caravan is there. It's been scaled back. I mean, I don't know. I, I guess I could assume that ASO and the Tour de France is probably making less money this year than they normally would. Um, but how important was it, do you think, uh, in terms of for the Tour de France to make this tour happen? Because so many people said that if the tour doesn't happen, it will kill cycling. Pierre. Yeah, that's a, that's, that's a big, big question. Tour de France is, of course, at the top of cycling, and uh, Tour de France likes to believe the whole cycling depends on how is the Tour de France going, if it's going well. So Tour de France has to survive to feed the whole cycling family. So they, they love this idea of money coming from the top and um, helping every, let's say, every stages or every floor on that very big building. <clears throat> that said, uh, there is a very strange feeling. If you remember about Lavor, Lavor is a, is a small town close to Toulouse, and it was a town where, where we were just uh, before the Pyrenees. In that town, all public schools were closed because the department, which is uh, the region around uh, Lavor, um, was uh, classified in a red zone, which means, theoretically, no mass event can happen. So, meanwhile, there was this Tour de France happening. Meanwhile, there was a big, big VIP village at the start, uh, the day after. So, with people um, not being accessed, but, I mean, people linked to the organization, people who have uh, having backed the organization. So, people in France can see that like a big paradox. But every time I saw Tour de France organizers, they say, well, if the Tour de France doesn't happen, um, this, is a, this is a huge matter for cycling because 
nothing will happen. Maybe some teams will collapse. Uh, they will have uh, less exposures. The sponsors will leave. And so you need a tool. So this is also an idea all team managers have uh, at the top of their mind, much more than the riders themselves, we should say. It's the riders say, well, some of them told told me we had we have to come to the tour this year, but we don't really want to. They are not scared they could be unemployed next year if, if their team would collapse. It's more a thing for team managers and uh, tour de France organizers. Is this maybe right? Is this maybe wrong? Because as, as, you, as you know, many events have been cancelled this year. And um, next year, next year, it will happen again. And uh, this is supposed to be the new world. And um, maybe uh, a Tour de France is not necessary. So is this a big question? Why is there a Tour de France this year? Is that relevant? Is that safe? Is that uh, really um, that helpful? Uh, Guillaume Martin, you know, guy of Cofidis, a writer who is also a philosopher, he says, um, Tour de France is almost nothing. It's a little, little, little thing. But life is made, life is an addition of little, little things. And Tour de France can be that. Cycling can be that. Can I just break in? So. Is Guillaume Martin happy to be at the Tour? GC at some point. So he was quite happy. Now he's struggling. Of course, this Tour is so weird. Their preparation has been completely uh, messy, yeah. different. So you can see for the very first time, riders completely uh, cooked, completely broken. Yeah, many, many. It has been the first time for... Whoa, for for a while, yeah, definitely, and and you see, those riders are. Um, it's difficult to say happy. Now I think they are happy to 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 be in Paris soon, um, but at first it was it was difficult. It was very dark. Nice Nice Candepa was depressing. It, it has come better and better. So maybe it's a bit of a symbol, like uh, hope will emerge from ashes. I don't know this kind of symbolic, maybe. When when we look back at Nice. That was the most, those were probably the darkest days. A, the weather was not good. And B, there was no crowds. The stands were empty. The promenade d'anglais was empty. You wrote uh, stories about this. You were very critical about the start of the tour. And you got a lot of criticism from ASO and from and from others. Um, I thought it was a very brave story that you did. Um, but it was true. We were sitting there for the first weekend in Nice. And, yeah. Uh, or as you know, the talking heads you know once said, and one day you may ask yourself, "Well, how did I get here? What are we doing?" You know, and it got really—it was just—we got off to a very tentative start, and yet it has slowly been building. We had uh, we had one day in the Pyrenees with really great crowds. The next day, not so much. Then we had you know it was sort of hit and miss. The first two weeks, all of a sudden you have great crowds, Tour de France crowds. Another day you had like. Barely any crowds, and then this last week it's been building, you know, consistently. And and I, you know, I I happen to think that I think that that ASOs, you know, and the sanitary people uh, uh, powers have been, you know, they've been making real efforts. They they just distribute distribute thousands of masks every day, and they are going around here. Would you like to wash your hands? This and that. They are they have vehicles announcing the race will be coming through in the next five minutes it is now mandatory you put your masks on until the broom wagon comes on and even before and after that it's still highly 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 recommended but now it's mandatory you know no we don't have cops we don't have enough cops to stand behind every individual 
and monitor if they're wearing masks. But the message has been very clear. Yeah, it's been it's been a, an interesting tour at, at so many different levels. Um, I guess my question is, being a, you know an observer of the tour for so many years, kind of coming in, parachuting in as as a visitor, you know. Uh, we see it as as this uh, Tour de France is like a, a national event, but does it really feel that way to the French people? I mean, do they really truly identify? Because when we see, of course, every day there are just so many uh, thousands of people on the road. I mean, it, it seems like it has the has the tour in danger of somehow losing its relevance to a modern society of France that maybe is becoming more multicultural, more modern, younger generation. Do you think the tour, the tour is eternal or is there perhaps some sort of uh, in the future, maybe it might lose its relevance to a younger audience? We are in a very <clears throat> unstable society. You see, you can feel many things changing and the Tour de France looks eternal. It looks very um, stable. It looks, um, you know, many towns and cities in France are now uh, ruled by the Green Party, like uh, Lyon, like uh, Bordeaux, like Marseille, uh, in some extent. And um, the new mayors who have been elected last spring now are very uh, critical against the Tour of the France uh, pattern has to be um, completely um, rebuilt. Uh, it's not fair in terms of um, um, d- gender equality. It's not fair in terms of pollution. It has um, it has to change a lot. And um, what happened is, of course, uh, there have been uh, many controversy behind that. And also, uh, Christian Prudhomme, the Tour de France boss, is very angry and says, we have put so many force to try to change. And uh, <clears throat> you are still complaining. But you can see there is a big part of uh, French society which wants to absolutely the Tour de France to, to protect because they get the impression the Tour de France is visiting uh, the dark, the deep countryside of France, while many uh, ministers, while uh, the French president himself is, is almost never coming. So the Tour de France is, is clearly now a countryside event, mostly a countryside event, and countryside feels they are lost um, whatever this is um, about um, employment rate, whatever this is about, uh, do you have like a, a bank uh, office, do you have uh, a train station, do you have school for your children? And of course, a big part of the countryside is broken. And the Tour de France is still coming, like in the 60s, like in the 70s, like in the 50s. It is still uh, the years a big event, a big party for your village, for your town, for your city. So this is still a very, um, let's say, uh, structural um, event. Uh, it's, it's supposed also to show people uh, some pride from themselves. And this is a bit of recognition, uh, which is missing apart from the tour. It's interesting. I mean, I've, I've been covering the sport for 30 years. And... Um, the amount, of, and, and, and almost always, almost not exclusively, but really probably 80% of my time has been spent in France. And I cover races, large and small. And to be honest, I really much prefer the small races today uh, and have for a long time. Uh, my favorite races uh, over the years have been the Grand Prix de Midi, doesn't exist anymore, rest in peace. Um, today, races like Tour de la Provence, uh, Ardèche and Drome Classic, these are wonderful races that go to the heart of France with, you know, Local volunteer organizations 
very involved, giving a lot of time to make these things happen because they believe in the power of bicycle racing. And um, and I I, th- I think what Pierre says is is, is very right. Um, they the the sport goes into the to the heart of the country, and it brings joy. And the amount of times where I have been to a town, like for example, just one that comes to mind, Monde, M O N D E, and I've been there most of the time for bicycle races. I said, oh, this is a really nice town, you know got to come back sometime, you know, for a weekend or a little vacation. And you go back to some of these places without the festivities of a bicycle race, be it the Tour de France or some smaller race, and the place doesn't look so good, you know? It's just not... That's not the message that they want everyone to hear, James. You know, I'm just telling you what it is. I'm just telling you what it's like. But when the tour comes to town, when a bike race comes to town, people get out, people are happy, and it brings the best out in people, brings the best out in towns. And, and it's a good time all around. It's a free event, and it's free. It's free. It's one of the very few things which are free now. And for everybody, you can be an old person, you can be a kid, and uh, you have fun. You just see it's colorful. You don't know cycling. You don't care about cycling, but you love the tour. And this is I mean, this is why I found one of the main reasons I fell in love with the sport was it was it was free, and a bike race would come to town, and all the great champions that I know. Um, you know, they, they take time. They, you know, they come out of their team buses. They know they're going to take 10 or 15 minutes and they're just going to sign autographs and chat with the people that are waiting at the barriers for a glimpse of them, for a possible handshake or fist or whatever you call it, or an autograph. And, and that is the power of bicycle racing in a place like France. Just uh, before we wrap this up, uh, uh, Pierre, thanks for your perspective. Just my question has always been, you know, there's always this talk, you know, that the tour, uh, you know, they should share their TV rights and all this kind of stuff. And uh, there was there have been a few rumors over the years that the tour might have been sold to someone, you know, not French. You know, we've heard rumors of even Lance Armstrong buying it, uh, the Chinese, Chinese, the Chinese, Chinese taking it over. But to me, it seems like such an ingrained event. It's a political event, really, in the sense of, like Prudhomme and the, and the people that run the race are almost politicians. They have to go out and groom the politicians, the mayors, take them to dinners. That's what they do the whole winter is make sure that they have all these start towns lined up for the next year's tour. Could you ever imagine one day an American company, a British company, or a Chinese company owning the Zero de France? Look, in '46, just after World War II, um, because um, the Tour de France organization was involved um, well, in some dirty business with the Nazis. So Tour de France uh, didn't happen in uh, 45, in 46. And um, the French government almost decided to give the organization to the Communist Party because they won. I mean, they were part of the winners uh, after World War II. And um, <clears throat> there have been some very strong political and economical interests uh, um, um, to, to let the Tour de France in the hands of not uh, just one uh, political party, but uh, the government. And the government didn't want to look after the race um, just by itself. So they were keen on giving the Tour de France back to the previous organizers, so 
uh, Lotto newspaper changed their name and it has become L'Equipe. And uh, the Tour de France has uh, remained the Tour de France, but it has always been a top priority. Um, it will be like uh, sailing uh, La Joconde in Le Louvre. Or it, it, sounds, it sounds something absolutely impossible uh, to sell the Tour. And some people tried. Some people tried to buy the Tour. And uh, always this is the same answer. Uh, the Tour is not uh, for sale. So, and, and plus... What's the price? So the big question is, Mario Di Lamori is now quite an old person, and uh, we don't know what will happen after her. She has two uh, children. Uh, they are in charge of the company, and uh, we don't know if they love the tour as much as she loves. Well, she doesn't love the tour, really, but she wants to to keep uh, uh, the, the family history uh, after her uh, beloved husband, uh, Philippe Amaury. Mm. He, he passed away. So she, she wants to, to keep the tour. But after her, this is a big question mark. I'll never forget the, the one time I had a, a phone interview with Madame Amaury. And it was sort of an kind of an abstract phone. I mean, she wasn't really talking to me. I think it was on speakerphone. And there was a couple, you know, like her assistant was there. And I, at one point, I said, you know, I understand that the uh, the tour is perhaps for sale, or the tour is, has had some offers. And she had been very distant in in the conversation. All of a sudden, you can hear her screaming from across the row the room on the on the loudspeaker. The Tour de France is not for sale. <laughs> the Tour de France is not for sale. It was an amazing moment, really. That's great. And maybe this is the situation where. Even though the Tour de France is a privately owned uh, uh, instance, its relationship to France and the French government is such that it's linked. And perhaps that will protect it from just becoming a capitalist venture by some country that has nothing to do with France or the Tour de France. Let me just add, yesterday we saw Macron yep. uh, at the race. Yes. Every year, every year the French president comes to the Tour de France. Uh, is that a mutually beneficial relationship? I mean, is that something that, uh, you know, it's good for the, the, for the French president to be seen? He's out there. It's a tradition. How did that tradition start and why do you think uh, the president's always feel they have to do that. Is oh, that- so, so General de Gaulle was a very uh, distant. The Tour de France uh, stopped once in his uh, uh, hometown at the time, uh, Colombey les deux églises. So the race, it is one of the very few times where uh, the Tour de France uh, properly stopped to uh, to say hello to uh, a very big uh, person, uh, character. Oh, a tall person, yeah, big and tall, yeah. Um, well, uh, Mitterrand was not very keen on the tour. He too much gone. of an intellectual, too much of an urbanite. That's it. He, 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 he loved uh, reading books, but not Chirac, just a very few times. Uh, Giscard, uh, few, well, <laughs> Sarkozy and Macron were, at, and Hollande. So the last three French presidents are absolutely uh, crazy about the tour. They know it is popular. They know it comes from, uh, let's say, um, somebody, it comes from a CEO to uh, some um, uh, poor class people. So the Tour de France is supposed to blend all generations and uh, all uh, uh, social uh, classes. Pierre, thank you very much for your your insight. And James, uh, thank you. uh, And uh, that wraps it up for tonight. We'll chat to you soon on the Velo News Podcast. Thanks so much, Pierre, for coming. 